You're in the water loop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I know a lot of people want to use water efficient fixtures, but they're afraid they won't work as well. Let me tell you about High Sierra Showerheads, which was named Best Showerhead by Popular Science. I just installed one at my house and I was genuinely surprised at the power and coverage of the water. High Sierra Showerheads earn the EPA WaterSense label for water efficiency. They use at least 40% less water than the conventional low flow showerheads. High Sierra showerheads are constructed out of metal, so there's no plastic involved, they're very durable, and they're naturally antibacterial. One of my favorite things, these showerheads are made in the USA by a small business located in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Get 20% off with promo code WATERLOOP at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Order today and start saving water and money with High Sierra. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. I am very honored to have the guest for this episode, Rob Balot, environmental attorney. He is uh, the author of Exposure. Um, his uh, career work on the Forever Chemicals on PFAS um, and DuPont uh, is also the subject of the film Dark Waters. Um, so, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate yeah. the opportunity. Um, and I, I mentioned I have a, just a tremendous interest in this as well because of my work experience at EPA, um, my my work in water, the fact I'm in one of these communities that's uh, impacted in Wilmington, North Carolina, where we've had Gen X in the, in the Cape Fear River in the water for decades, um, being a father and having kids and worried about their exposure to, to these chemicals. So uh, it's, it's just really great to talk to you. For people um, that might not know the story um, that you cover in Exposure um, and that you've been working on for several decades, um, could you give us kind of the, the summary here? Sure. You know, it's really a story that spans, at least from my involvement, over two decades now. But really, it's a story that goes back oh, some 60, 70 years. Mm. You know, it's um, really involving the discovery of a group of chemicals that we now refer to as forever chemicals that are completely man-made synthetic chemicals didn't exist on the planet prior to World War II that have now managed to find their way into drinking water virtually all over the United States and now almost all over the entire globe. Mm. And not only are they drinking water contaminants, they're, they're ending up in our soils, um, in sediment, in, in lakes, and unfortunately now in blood of living creatures all over the planet, including humans. And, um, you know, this is something that didn't happen back in the 1800s. I mean, this is, this is contamination that occurred modern day during our lifetime. Um, and what I try to do, what I try to explore in the book Exposure, what you see in the film Dark Waters, and there's a documentary as well, The Devil We Know, that looks at, at this with the real people involved is essentially the story of how this happened. Mm. You know, how is it that you can end up with contamination like this with chemicals that have these unique abilities uh, to, to essentially never break down? Uh, they have these really strong chemical bonds between carbon and fluorine that once they're out in the environment, it's almost impossible for these things to break down 
naturally, under natural conditions. They don't degrade. That's why you hear them referred to as forever chemicals. And they also have this ability, once they get out in the environment, not only to stay in the environment and water and soil, but in living things. They, they not only persist in us, but they build up. They bioaccumulate over time. And we've also now learned, um, after being able to see all the internal studies that the companies making these chemicals had for decades, that they're incredibly toxic. Uh, PFOA, for example, has been linked with cancers and six different diseases. So what I've what what you see in the book, in the movie, in the documentary is the story of how we found this out. I mean, it took almost 20 years to really uncover what was known about these chemicals. And it's not that nobody knew about this. Um, it was that the companies that were making these chemicals, um, that were putting them out into our environment, and that continue to do so, frankly. Um, knew a lot about the toxicity of these chemicals, yet they essentially went unregulated um, because they came out decades before the EPA even existed, decades before a lot of our laws governing uh, how you handle new chemicals coming out on the market, uh, how they are regulated. So unfortunately, these were sort of these unusual chemicals that were out in our environment. They were out there before the EPA rules really came in. And they kind of went under the radar screen for decades. And how we were able to uncover that, how we were able through a farmer in West Virginia who called my office one day in 1998 complaining about cows dying on his property, how that led to us uncovering not only what was happening on his property, but the contamination of drinking water and blood all over the planet. So that's it, kind of in a nutshell um, what, what, what the story is, what we're talking about. Yeah. And uh, I really encourage people, if they haven't read the book, seen the motion picture or seen the documentary, I think it's really great to uh, check out all three pieces so you can kind of have, it gives you a nice complete picture. Um, so it's, it's amazing to me. You were, you were an attorney at this firm. You weren't an environmental activist or out on this angle, but you, it just kind of came to you. Um, and I know that there's a 20 year story from that phone call to today, but, uh, could you go into what happened that, you know, you got the phone call from this farmer, uh, and you go out there and you, and you check out this farm and then, and then what happens? Sure. Um, you know, I started, uh, my practice of law in 1990, started with the firm Taft, Satinius and Hollister in Cincinnati and joined their environmental group. And most of what I was doing the first eight or nine years of my practice was helping our big chemical company clients uh, learn and comply with all the different federal environmental laws. Uh, so a lot of what I was doing in my career and at my law firm, and I'm still there, it'll be 30 years um, this year at Taft, uh, was really working with big companies, big corporate clients and chemical companies, helping them Try to figure out all the federal environmental laws, deal with super fun cleanups that were going on in the early 90s. That was a really active area. So I get this call one day on my phone uh, at the office from this gentleman who starts rattling on about cows dying on his property. And not exactly the kind of thing that I handled. I was about to hang up until he mentioned that he had gotten my name from my grandmother. And so I paused and listened a little more closely. And but it ended up, uh, the story here was this gentleman was raising cows on property right outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia. 
And that is the community where my mom's family had grown up. I spent a lot of time as a kid, holidays, family events. We would always be going back and forth. So this is kind of what I viewed as my hometown. Because my dad was in the military. We moved around a lot, but we always went back to Parkersburg. So when he mentioned that he had gotten my name from uh, my grandmother, he couldn't get anybody locally to talk to him about what was happening with his cows. And I tried to find out why. You know, why is nobody talking to you? And it ended up he was seeing white foam coming out of this landfill, uh, going into the creek that his cows were drinking from. His cows apparently were, were getting um, developing tumors. They were wasting away no matter how much food he gave them. They were getting black teeth. They were dropping dead. And it wasn't just the cows. It was the deer, the fish, the birds in the area. Um, and he claimed you know, he'd gone to the company that owned the landfill and really couldn't get much, um, uh, much response. It ended up the company was DuPont, yes. which happened to be one of the biggest employers in the town. So when he started complaining, hey, I think this landfill owned by DuPont is, is hurting my cows, apparently nobody in town wanted to talk to him. Uh, they didn't want to go up against DuPont. This was, this was the big employer. They had a great reputation in town. So he was looking for somebody outside uh, of the community that could help him. That's how he came to me. So we, we, I agreed to talk with him. I looked at a bunch of videotapes that he had taken for years that showed all of what he was talking about. You could see it in graphic detail in these videos. You know, these were the days he went out with his camcorder in the, in the mid-90s and started filming. And you could see the dead animals. He even cut into them. And in the movie, Dark Waters, you see some of the actual videotape that Mr. Tennant took when he opened up the animals. And you could see what was going on inside. And so clearly, something was wrong. And so we agreed to take that case on uh, back. This is 1998 um, and tried to figure out what was happening. You know, what was going on in this landfill? What, why, what was in this white foaming water? And, you know, we kind of handled it as we did a normal case, trying to get permits, looking at what was permitted. What were the, what were the levels of the contaminants that were allowed? Nothing was jumping out on these permits. We were looking at all the listed regulated chemicals and nothing really was explaining. And DuPont was more than happy to give us all the information about the listed regulated chemicals in the landfill. We just weren't finding anything. So one day I, I decided, you know, um, we're not getting anywhere here. Uh, I can't find anything. I want to know exactly what are you making at this plant down the river that's sending all the waste to this landfill? And ex what... What are you sending to the landfill? I don't, not just what's in the permit. I want to know everything. Well, that then led to a bit of a fight with DuPont. Uh, we had to go to court, get court orders. They uh, finally started turning over the internal documents to us. And it was only when I started digging through all of that. And you see it in the film. You know, this is the days of everything came in paper back then. Mm -hmm. Nothing was electronic. Mm -hmm. I had to go through all these papers. And what I finally discovered was they were using this man-made chemical called PFOA um, that had been one of these I mentioned that was made right after uh, World War II. Uh, it never existed on the planet before then, but DuPont had been buying it since 1951 and using it at their plant along the Ohio River, the world's largest Teflon manufacturing facility, since 1951. And had been emitting it into the air, into the Ohio River, and into landfills. In fact, they had sent 7,000 tons of this chemical-soaked sludge into the landfill that Mr. Tennant, who's the farmer from West Virginia, and what does it do when it hits the water? It causes white foam. Mm. So I finally figured out, 
you were dealing with this unregulated chemical in the water at this landfill. And that really blew open the whole case. And uh, for the next uh, many, many years, we had to dig in to try to figure out what was known about this chemical. What did the company know about its toxicity? Um, and that's, that, that led to us finally uh, un un uncovering what was known. I tried to provide as much of that information as I could to the U.S. EPA beginning around the year 2001, because most of this information about the toxicity, the persistence, the bioaccumulation aspects, it had been known to the companies making it and using it, 3M who made it, and DuPont who was using it, but none of that had been turned over to the EPA or to the state of West Virginia, and none of it to the public. Um, and particularly the fact it wasn't just in this landfill, it was in the drinking water of the entire surrounding community. DuPont had known it since the 80s. And it was not only just, it, not only was it in the water, it was in the water above the levels DuPont's own scientists said were safe. Even though the EPA and the states didn't know about this, so there were no regulations, no standards, DuPont's own scientists, knowing how, how concerning this chemical was, its toxicity, its persistence, its bioaccumulation, they sat down in 1988 and became the first people on the planet to come up with a drinking water guideline for this chemical. They said no more than 0.6 parts per billion. And we're all talking about parts per trillion for these chemicals now. But that was important back then because that happened to be basically the lowest level you could detect it at the time. Mm. So they were essentially saying when they looked at it, if you can find it in the water, it's probably too high. And so it took the next 20 years to get that information out to the agencies, to the public, to the scientific community. And we eventually finally had the chemical phased out in the United States. We, hit, we now started, are starting to look at the related chemicals, and I know I'm talking way too long in response to this, but uh, no, not uh, it, uh, it, it all led, it all came from Mr. Tennant in West Virginia, knowing there was something wrong in that land, going on in that landfill. There was some chemical there, and he was right. He ultimately was right. And you go back and look at those videos he took in the 1990s. When he was opening up those animals, and you can hear him say things like, look at those kidneys, look at the liver. And now here we are 20 years later. What, what do we know this chemical can do? It can cause kidney cancer in humans. It causes liver disease. And so it's, it's um, liver problems, problems with liver enzymes. So, um, um, you know, we have Mr. Tennant uh, really to thank for all of us knowing about this now. The people of Parkersburg. Um had their health impacted, not, not just Mr. Tennant, right? A lot of them have, have had an, you know, big health impacts. Um, how, did, how did the story kind of end? What, did, what was the resolution as far as the compensation to these people? Well, you know, after we found out what was happening to Mr. Tennant's property and the community finally found out this was in their drinking water, after we sent the letters to the agencies alerting everybody to this, the community finally found out and came to us, and in 2001, we filed a class action on behalf of everyone in the area that had this in their drinking water. It ended up being six different public water supplies, dozens of people with wells, some 70,000 people in West Virginia and Ohio, up and down the Ohio River. Um, through that case, we eventually reached a settlement with DuPont several years later where we got DuPont agreed to put in filtration systems to clean this out of the water, 
And they've been working for the last 10 years to keep it down to non-detect. But we also set up an independent panel of scientists, something really nobody had ever done before. Because uh, despite everything we were finding in DuPont's files about the toxicity, what was known about what the chemical could do, not just to lab animals, but to humans through their own worker studies, DuPont was denying that, that any of that could happen to the people drinking it in the water. So when we sat down to settle the case, we agreed we needed independent scientists, not affiliated with DuPont or with the plaintiff's attorneys, to look at all of this data, do new studies of the community that was drinking it, and tell us unequivocally, once and for all, what can this chemical do to people that drink it over the long term. And most importantly, we wanted to know about people who were exposed at these levels, at the levels that were being found in that community, at that dose level. We wanted this, this group to study that. So we set this project up in 2005. We had some 69,000 people who came forward, provided blood, medical information. This panel spent seven years studying all of this, some of the most massive human health studies ever done. And at the end of the day, in 2012, they were able to confirm that drinking PFOA was linked with six serious diseases, kidney cancer, testicular cancer, ulcerative colitis, thyroid disease, preeclampsia, and high cholesterol. And having that independent science confirmed in 2012 really was a game changer because once we had that data, US EPA went out and started requiring public water supplies all across the country 2013, 2014, to start sampling for the first time for this chemical. People finally began realizing this chemical isn't just a West Virginia or Ohio problem. It's all over the United States. And that finally led to the EPA coming out with the drinking water guideline in 2016 that spurred even more sampling and testing. Then other states came forward and finally started saying, we think the levels should be even lower that are allowed in drinking water. So states have been coming out with even lower guidelines. More people are becoming aware. So since 2016, 2017, we've really seen, finally, the awareness about the scope and extent of this chemical and its related uh, chemical uh, cousins in the PFOS family. People are finally becoming aware of that. And really, through the movie coming out, the book, the documentary, we wanted, I wanted to find a way to get this information out to the public in the broadest sense we could. Because even though we had seen all this, I had seen all this. I mean, I've been working on that for 20 years, digging all this out. By 2016, it was still pretty clear. Most people in the United States had never heard of this, had no idea these chemicals were out there. And so the New York Times came out with a magazine article in 2016 summarizing all this. Well, that's when Mark Ruffalo saw it and said, hey, <laughs> I never heard of this. And he was very active in water issues and rights picked up the phone and called me and said, how could something like this be happening in the United States? And I've never heard of this. Nobody's heard of this. How do we bring this story out to a wider audience so people understand how this happened, that it's actually happening, and what we can do about it? So we are, that was a, they pulled together a terrific group that put the movie together. I did the book, Exposure, to try to get that fact information out to as many people as we can. Documentary also helps do that as well. So we're finally seeing this information come out and people still refer to this as emerging chemical mm. contamination because <laughs> they're just learning about it. 
But the reality is it's been going on since 1950s. And we're just now, but the only thing emerging is our awareness and understanding of it. How does it feel to you, right, uh, that you put in this couple, over two decades of work, you know, endless work uh, to have it, the awareness about PFAS, these forever chemicals reach, reach this level, you know, in the country and in the world. How, how does that just feel for you to, to, to actually get to this point? You know, it's incredibly encouraging. It was, it, it, it was many years of frustration to be seeing the kind of data we were seeing um, to be looking at the studies that we found within the internal DuPont files or for 3M that were showing what I understood to be, and our experts, our scientists who were looking at it, were saying, this is a public health threat. I mean, this, these are seriously toxic materials that should not be in people's drinking water. But to be seeing all that and realizing we might be the only ones who have seen this outside of the companies. Nobody else is seeing this. Nobody else is, is understanding this. And to have, you know, very active PR campaigns being waged by the companies in the media to try to counteract that, to say, no, 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 these are all perfectly safe. These, these products present no threat to, to anyone. Um, it was incredibly frustrating. It's difficult to overcome that kind of momentum. Um, so to see that information finally come out uh, is incredibly encouraging. And to have it done in a way that they were able to do, for example, through the film. You know, the people at Participant, Focus Features, Mark Ruffalo, Todd Haynes, the director, they did a fantastic job in putting that story together in a way that people see not only what happened, you know, legally, scientifically, but just the real impact this has on real people, real communities, you know, the people that have to deal with this for the last 20 years. Yeah. Well, um, and yeah. hopefully people are inspired to know we all don't have to do, keep doing this. We should be able to learn from what happened and make things different. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I went to a, the screening they had here in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, and, you know, we're in this theater with several hundred people and seeing it in that setting with people from the community who have been subjected to this in the water. It was, uh, man, it really magnified the impact. It was, it was, really emotional to, to see in that, in that setting. Um, so it's, it's great stuff. Um, I'm curious, I, I want to hear more about, uh, the value of having some of these people involved, uh, you know, Mark Ruffalo and others kind of, uh, you know, celebrities, public figures that are starting to talk about, you know, this particular issue, water, water, uh, contamination. You know, I think it's incredibly important you know, to find ways to be able to get information out to the widest audience as, as possible. You know, I've tried everything I could do as a lawyer, you know, through the legal system, sending letters to the EPA repeatedly, you know, over the years, doing everything I can to provide the raw data and the facts, you know, to, to lay it out as well as I could do, to use whatever I could do through the legal platform, you know, to get that information out. But, you know, it's incredibly important to be able to have folks who have access to uh, platforms to get the information out to a wider group. You know, for example, and you see this in the film, and I talk about it in the book, you know, around 2003, when some of this information finally kind of started to trickle out to the public, when the EPA came out with its first risk assessment for this chemical, 
um, we had a, a group, the environmental working group, was able to come in and start posting a lot of this on their website, you know, which was for the first time, you've got an ability to almost be at an equal footing with a major company like DuPont that has PR departments, media people, you know, that are able to get their message out to the mainstream, you know, press. Suddenly you have an ability to start doing that. And, you know, to, to be able to get information out to folks in a way, you know, that they can understand that it's not just legal legalese or scientific talk, but to put it in terms that people can understand, how does this impact me? You know, why is this a problem for me? You know, and I think people, for the, the, the people who put the film together did a great job in, I think, conveying this in a way that people understand this is something that can affect all of us. You know, this isn't just an issue out in West Virginia, but, you know, every one of us, when we turn our tap on, we all just assume it's perfectly safe. There are people that are checking all of this and, and taking care of all of this. And it's a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> you know, it's a lot more it's a lot more complex system. And I try to explore that in the book, you know, just all of the different things that are actually going on in the background. Um, but to be able to have folks that like Mark Ruffalo, you know, that have the ability to have a voice and have people listen to, to what he's saying and be able to convey a story like this. It's incredibly important, particularly when you're dealing with something that is a public health threat. Mm. You know, you're, you need to be able to find a way to get the information out to the public. Yeah. And, you know, having a vehicle like that is incredible. Absolutely. One, one, uh, side question I have, you know, in the book, uh, it was interesting, the author's note in the beginning, which is almost like a, a legal disclaimer kind of piece. Um, is that what it is? Does this help you cover your cover bases? Or is this kind of just like some context you wanted to provide or, or frame it? Because I, well, I thought it was, yeah, yeah, I thought it was important to, to be clear, you know, that what we're trying to do here is provide the most accurate facts we can based on things that have been actually put into the public record, put through trials, presented to juries. Um, but, you know, it's also my personal recollections of things. And, you know, my, my best recollection and my best attempt to reconstruct the events that have happened. Um, but really frame for people, this is not just, you know, it's a made up story here. This is actually taken from real people, real events, real things that happen. And, you know, there, there you can go to court records and you can find these documents. You can see that these things actually happen. Mm -hmm. Looking forward a little bit here, um, you know, what changes do you think should be made to address the PFAS problem, the forever chemicals problem? You know, um, I, I know you're an environmental attorney and that's the focus in your specialty, but, but what do you think the country should do about this? You know, I'm really hoping that folks start to understand and, and address these, these chemicals in a way that's a lot more comprehensive. You know, you mentioned you were from Wilmington, North Carolina, and that community sort of presents the, the perfect snapshot of what I'm talking about here. You know, it took us 20 years to bring out the information about, frankly, what was already known about PFOA within the company's internal files. And it just took us that long to, to show everybody else what was already known about this. And through that entire long process, that process you see played out through the film, that whole story, 
that's what it took to get PFOA to, to finally be voluntarily removed off the market in the U.S. And to, to see that chemical start to finally be pulled back and regulations finally start getting proposed for that. 20 years. But unfortunately, what we see happen in the meantime, PFOA is just one of this entire family of related chemicals called PFAS, per- and polyfluoral alkylated substances. There are hundreds, if not thousands of them. So while the information finally started to come out on PFOA and that finally started to get pulled out of the market, the company simply tweaks it a bit. It takes this eight-carbon chemical, a C8 thing that has eight carbons and fluorine, simply take two of them off, make it a C6, suddenly call it something new. We call it Gen X as this new safe replacement for PFOA. And that immediately starts getting pumped into the environment out in Fayetteville, North Carolina, where it's then dumped into the water. It makes its way down into the drinking water in Wilmington. And once people finally discover this this new replacement chemicals in the water, what do we hear? The same thing we heard 20 years ago when we first brought up the fact we had found PFOA in the water. Well, there's no evidence that this causes any human health effects, and there's, there's insufficient evidence to say that this presents any human threat. We should not have to go through this 20-year process again before we start being able to take action on Gen X or any of these other related chemicals. And what scientists and regulators are now saying is we have to look at this entire family as a comprehensive group of chemicals. Take what we know about one of them. You know, we've got the most, probably more information about PFOA than any other chemical out there now. Massive human health studies. These other chemicals share very similar chemical characteristics. And so folks are saying, let's look at the whole class and deal with this as a class-wide basis. Otherwise, it's a whack-a-mole game. You know, what, if you finally take action on one, well, they tweak it slightly and suddenly it's new and you start all over again on another 20-year process. So I'm hoping that by seeing this story about what we, what we went through on PFOA, that people understand we can't do that again for each one of these chemicals as they come out and they're slightly tweaked, deal with it in a comprehensive way now. Um, and that's happening in Europe and, and across the globe where people are trying to, to address this much more comprehensively. And there aren't, you know, up to now, it's the people who are drinking the stuff in their water, in our system, that are told they have the burden to come forward and prove how this chemical's hurting them. And then they're told, well, you can't prove that unless you have human health studies showing these health effects. Communities don't have those kind of resources to do $100 million studies, to do that kind of thing. So it's almost an impossible burden for these communities that have this, that are finding this in their water, that are told, well, you've got the burden to prove it's hurting you. (laughs) And meanwhile, let's wait 20, 30 years to see how many of you develop cancer. And if you do, well, then maybe you can prove it down the road. So there's, there's an effort underway to really try to look at that whole approach to the way we deal with chemicals here and come up with hopefully something, um, hopefully people will be motivated and have ins- be inspired to figure out some new way to do this in a much more comprehensive, much more effective way. Yeah, I know that EPA yeah. is headed towards drinking water regulations. I know Congress has been uh, batting around a bunch of different legislation related to, to PFAS. Um, what are your perceptions and expectations of those efforts? You know, it's, it's, it's been fascinating to watch that 
bubble up within the last year or so. You know, for the for the prior 20 years, um, couldn't really get anybody to focus on these chemicals, let alone propose legislation on a federal level. So it's it's remarkable to see the discussions that are now happening that really hadn't happened before. We have federal legislators that are now talking about PFAS and are now saying that we need to address these chemicals. We have we have it ha- these same kind of discussions now are occurring in states all across the country. They're occurring at the EU, at the UN. Yeah, people are recognizing these chemicals are out there. They're a problem. We need to deal with them. And people are now proposing legislation to try to accelerate that process. You know, there are a lot of hurdles for EPA to be able to move forward and actually set regulations. It's a very complex, very long process. So there is legislation being proposed to try to accelerate that and to try to say, let's declare these hazardous, for example, under federal law by legislation. Let's just do that so we can move forward. Because one of the problems we have is as we sit here today in the year 2020, we still don't have an enforceable actual federal standard for these chemicals in drinking water. They haven't been declared hazardous under one of the federal laws. So when they show up, for example, outside of military bases where the chemicals have been used in firefighting foam for decades and have been found in the drinking water outside airports or military bases, you have the Department of Defense saying we can't go in and clean it up because it's not regulated. It's not a regulated federal chemical. We can't use our funds that way. Yet at the same time, <laughs> you have opposition to having them regulated. So it, it's, it's fantastic, though, that we're finally having this conversation. Those, those are, conversations are finally occurring. These things are finally up on the radar screen across the country, across the globe, that you know, we finally need to be taking action. So it's incredibly encouraging to see that happening. You know, I'm, I'm hoping having the movie out there and the documentary and the book is helping people to understand what needs to be done at least understand the problem. So it's incredibly encouraging to see that. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of uh, community groups out there that are also kind of picking up, uh, picking up this fight. You know, you, you mentioned the environmental working group. They're a big, big national group, right? But here we have clean Cape fear and, and, you know, people like Emily Donovan that are fighting on the local level and, and building local awareness. So that's obviously a key part of it too. Um, so absolutely. What what now? What are you doing with your time now? <laughs> what, what what's your what's your what's your what's your work focus and and uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually still um, working on PFAS litigation in a number of different contexts. You know, we are as as this as this not only PFOA but the related family of PFAS chemicals are showing up in drinking water all over. You know, we're helping different. Um, parties that have been impacted by this, that are having to spend money to clean up the water, you know, uh, states and water providers that are being saddled with unbelievable costs, you know, to try to get rid of this stuff in the water, communities that are dealing with this. So uh, we're involved in a lot of litigation still to try to help people so that they aren't having to foot the bill for, for this contamination now. Um, well, one of the, the, one of the recent things I've done is you know, as I see these new chemicals, these related PFAS chemicals showing up in the water, showing up in our blood, and hearing the same thing I heard 20 years ago about PFOA from the companies making these, there's not there's insufficient evidence 
to regulate these. We don't have enough information yet. The science isn't in yet on these things. Well, I'm trying to find a way to say, if the folks that are making this and putting it out into our environment, putting it in our water, getting it into our blood, they shouldn't be able to sit back and say, well, well, you people, the ones we're exposing, you don't have enough evidence to show that it's harmful yet. I've tried to find a way to say, let's get that science done, but the company should be paying for it, not us. And so what I've tried to do is take the model of what we did in West Virginia and Ohio with PFOA in one community, where we set up this independent science panel to independently confirm what PFOA does to you in the water and to take that model and expand it on a national basis. So I filed a case in 2018 in federal court in Ohio, seeking to bring a class action on behalf of everyone in the United States who has not just PFOA, but all of these PFAS chemicals in their blood. And the goal is not to get money at this point, it's to actually get the studies done. If the companies say there's insufficient science to tell us, Let's set up independent scientists. Let's do the studies and testing to tell us exactly what this will be do- what, what this will do, and the company should be paying for it, not us. So that case is pending right now. The companies filed motions to try to get it thrown out, try to get it sent to different judges. All of those were denied. Um, but then you know the virus has hit, yeah. and so proceedings yeah. in court have been slowed down. Um, but we've got a lot of irons in the fire here trying to to help um, address the PFAS contamination all across the country and in many different ways as we can. Yeah, sure. I know, for example, here in Wilmington, they're putting in a granular activated carbon system, right, to try to remove the Gen X. And that comes with a $43 million price tag, which at the moment is, you know, falling on the backs of the, the rate payers, the customers here. It's $5 a month, which to me is completely worth it to have cleaner water. But everybody here feels like Kim Orr's, you know, should be footing that, that bill for that treatment. So hopefully that will happen, happen one day. Um, well, I, uh, like I said, I encourage everybody to pick up, pick up your book, Exposure, um, See Dark Waters, See the Devil We Know, um, Rob, I really appreciate your your time for this podcast, but even more, I appreciate uh, what you've done for these couple of decades. Uh, like I said, I say that as someone that works in water and uh, someone who personally cares about this, and especially as, as a father that got kids out there. So thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish choice for conserving water, energy, and money while enjoying an invigorating shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Waterloop.